The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Weston Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandweston.com.au and get your first episode produced for free. Even before we're born, we connect with the world around us through the vibration of sound. It shapes our experiences, triggers memories and elicits emotions. So what better way to connect with your audience than through something as primal and powerful as sound? At SNW Sonic Branding, our team of musicians, composers, sound designers and music strategists create vibrant sonic palettes for brands looking to be heard. SNW Sonic Branding. We hear you. I'm Paul Dunn and welcome to the Creative Relay. In our last episode, Laura Jordan Bambach spoke to Tara McKenty from Google. Now Tara's back in the Smith & Weston podcast suite to talk to a creative that inspires her. Tara McKenty, welcome back to The Creative Relay. Thanks for having me back, Paul. Yeah, well, you were very well behaved last time. So. Doesn't happen often. <laughs> I never get a second chance. That's it. No one ever calls me back and never you did, so here back. we are. Yeah, well, well done. Uh, now, at the at the end of our previous chat, you alluded to who your, your guest was going to be. Can you just remind us of what that little hint was? Yeah, so I gave a little hint that the next guest might be sporting a Kiwi accent. Mm-hmm. So I have brought with me today uh, another fellow New Zealander. By the name of? Beth O'Brien. So Beth is Head of Innovation for Accenture slash Monkeys. Okay, well, why don't we get Beth in? Terrific. <laughs> Kia Hello. New to the country. Hello to Oz and anyone further afield. Beth, it's great to meet you. Welcome to the Creative Relay. Welcome to the country. Thank you. So really, Tara, over to you. Like, I want to know why Beth is your person of choice. Good question. Me too. <laughs> so I've had the pleasure of knowing Beth for, oh, I'd say 15, 16 years, maybe, and have had the absolute joy of watching her career just flourish. So Beth is a notorious creative. Uh, I think Laura flattered me and, you know, last podcast and, you know, mentioned I'd picked up some awards along the way. And I think if I compare my cabinet to Beth, it's not even comparable. Beth picked up the first black pencil for New Zealand and just her work is absolutely notorious. So I thought I would share with your listeners just a really incredible, talented creative who's taking the world by storm. And now, fortunately has graced Australia and um, has recently crossed the ditch from New Zealand and um, is working in the industry here. But I'll let Beth talk a little bit more about herself. Oh, yeah, as a Kiwi, that was an uncomfortable 30 seconds. So uh, <laughs> thank you. I can chop your poppy down later in the episode. Thank you. Just to, <laughs> That's how it works. Thank you. Yeah, I would very much we build you up to <laughs> yeah. see you fall. I would very That's much it. appreciate that. Um, where would you like to begin? Yeah, Beth, I'd love to maybe kick off, let's hear a little bit about your origin story. Before you entered the world of commercial creativity, uh, you came from fine arts. And I, I've, in the pieces of work that I really adore of yours, I see a lot of that influence. So I, let's start from the very beginning, where you came from, who your family is, you know, your credit card. No, no I'm just kidding. Um, and then maybe a bit about your fine arts background and, and how you ended up in the industry, I think, is a good starting point. Mm. Well, I uh, grew up in the South Island of New Zealand 
in a town called Christchurch, which people probably know now as a, an earthquake city, I suppose. That may be what it's most famous for globally now. Everyone's family has a massive influence on who they become as an adult. My particular circumstances were I'm one of three girls to two parents, Christine and Morris, and they were a really interesting combination as a couple. They met, I think like most people at that age, at the pub when they were 17 and then got married when they were 20. And, but, um, I it's definitely, the Kiwi way. But I definitely remember growing up that there was a huge focus on things like social injustice, community. There was a lot of critical thinking debate around the dinner table, breakfast table. We were a real book household. My mum is a teacher and is now a principal of a high school. Um, I remember actually when Tara asked me to do a presentation at Semi Permanent and I rang my mum about it because I kind of didn't want to do it, you know, and I rang my mum about it because she has this amazing ability to get up and on stage and just talk or her ability to do hard things was unique. I didn't realise that growing up. And during that conversation, she mentioned to me actually about how that's not an easy thing. It doesn't come natural. It's just a straight up decision. And I remember when she got cancer, when she was like 60, and she spent time in the in the hospital and till then I'd probably, I understood that she'd done some crazy stuff in her life. Like she'd sued a bishop because they wouldn't release money that she'd raised to build a new building for a school. And <laughs> she'd taken the NZ um, RFU, which is like the nation's rugby body, to court because they wouldn't sort racism on the field in secondary school schools, like won that and um, yeah. And yeah. so anyway, when she got, I'd still only seen her in this. I'd just seen her always as a, a a teacher, which to me, by the way, is the most. If I had guts, I would be a teacher, mm. if that makes sense. But I was sitting in a hospital room and she was in the bed and she was like, "I don't want any visitors today." It was right after an operation. People had only just found out she had cancer. So I called uh, just a couple of key people and were like, nah, she doesn't want any visitors. And throughout the day, it was like a visitor from every single community, you can imagine, just came anyway. And I, I really, at that moment in my life, reassessed what success was. And who she was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably didn't change too much about what I was doing, but it's just, you know, when you're moving through your life, you just shift the, the goalposts a bit. I mean, we, do, we all do that constantly year on year anyway, but... Um, it was a really good thing to come out of a really bad thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you just saw for the first time that, that, those multiple aspects of her life, I guess. Yeah, and yeah. where I would like to be and who I yeah. would like to have affected by the time I'm 60. Thanks, Beth, for sharing that because I think um, yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, I think particularly the work I've seen you strive for has always been, you know, it, it ranges. So sometimes it's really... And you also have a wicked sense of humour, so it can be quite comedic or interesting. I love comedy. But, you know, I've also seen you strive for really purpose-driven work, and, and we'll talk about some of that work that you did in New York shortly. But mm-hmm. um, thank you for sharing that, because I think that will make a lot of sense as, as the conversation goes on, mm. and not an easy thing to share. So, mm. But tell us more mm-hmm. about the arts, yes. Christchurch. I definitely knew that I was a bit different to everybody else with how I process things, or maybe... I don't know, how I held conversations or I sort of felt like my mind was running a million miles an hour compared to other people around me. And I now know that's a ADHD dyslexia combination. But at that point when I was uh, young, I loved sports and I really found a home there. But it wasn't until I got to my secondary school years and I had this amazing art teacher, Stephen Clark, who also weirdly was from a, an advertising engineering combination background. Mm. 
And he 100% changed my life and my direction. He, um, sometimes I talk about this at different festivals, but he was an odd, odd guy. I remember I once sent him a, a message. To, I wanted a photo of him when I was talking about him, and I couldn't find one on the internet. And so I wrote this big email, and he wrote back, why? <laughs> and I was like, I just, well, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I explained this, Stephen, where I'm going to be having a conversation about you, blah, blah, blah. And so he, he's like, okay, I'll send you one, but you can't upload it to the internet. I was like, okay. And so he sent me a blurry photo of him walking through a gallery. It's the only existing photo <laughs> of Stephen Clark <laughs> <laughs> on the internet now. Is he on the run or something? Is, is, I don't know. He just, that's on? kind of what I loved about him. He just, he interrogated every system and thought and he never, ever took anything for granted as it is. You know, he'd always look at re- to redesign a system or redesign a thing. Or why is that this way? Or which was a phenomenally helpful background as a creative. Anyway, so I um, I went through art, went to art school. I think the key thing that that taught me that I carry with me into advertising is critique, really, you know, critique of what's in, what's in front of you and the context of everything, you know. The idea that, like, fine, the three of us are here sitting at a wooden table and there's a glass next to you, Tara, and that might be the first way that you describe the scenario, right? Mm. But then it's also like, okay, well... We're at a wooden table. When was that made? Who made that? The three of us, where are we from? What country are we in? You know what I mean? Like everything has so many layers of deep context. And yeah. art school gave you that um, skill to decode all of that layering yeah. and um, then bring it back together, explode it apart, bring it back together. So I feel like by the time I ended up at a Saturday night party at 2am when I met a creative and I'd never heard of that as a job, by the time I ended up there when someone told me what they did for a living as a creative, I was like, oh, God, I have to do that. I just... Who is that creative? I think that was a combination of uh, Lily Cameron, writer, and maybe John O'Aidney was there, maybe not sure, from The Monkeys in Melbourne. I don't know, I have to check with them. But, um, yeah, and so pretty much the next week I signed up for like a one-year creative course and went from there. But having, being being able to have honed instincts on what I thought something that was good was... By the time I walked into the industry, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. yeah, I think I met you in your final months of media art school, and then I think Beth... you were driving a Ute at that point. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what an odd recollection to have. I remember it. Yeah, it was yeah. quite notorious. Um, <laughs> the CEO of my agency at the time didn't really appreciate it being parked in his car park, but maybe he should have paid me more than you know $150 a week, and I could have upgraded my. Those were the days where you could like I. F- think in my first job, I feel like I remember playing, um, and Tom Darlow can legitimise this, but I feel like we we got our first raise through a table tennis game. <laughs> I remember. I don't think you can do that anymore. <laughs> I don't think you can do that anymore. Is that with Andy Bunn? Yeah, yeah. He didn't know I had a good serve. No, Sucker. It was funny because Beth and I, um, we did cross over and work at TBWA, um, which I kind of describe as my rock and roll years. There were some mm. pretty special people in that building. We had a lot of fun. Mm. Maybe it was just our age, but no, it's funny you brought up the ute because I tried to, it's like when people relive one stage of their life, they have the best years of their life. And so they just don't change that heck out or, you know, they're just like, that's, it all worked then. So let's continue. So I bought a ute here uh, about four years ago. I bought an Armorock because in New Zealand, if you drive a ute, you're like adventurous and sporty and it's, it has a, a different credit to it. Whereas here, my wife was like, you just look like a tradie and it's impractical. We can't park it in the city. So I didn't realise that. So I drove around in 
for a couple of years, people thinking I was a tradesperson. So you let that little dream go. I did. And now I drive a Fabia. Much more sensible. Yeah. Can't believe I told everyone that I have a Fabia. I'm going red. Anyway, Beth, TBWA, you... um, Forgot about that, but yeah. Andy Blood, some amazing creatives you worked for. Then I'm just going to rattle off what I can remember of your career and then Mm -hmm. I'd love to kind of dive into some of the work. Um, TBWA special. Did you come back to TBWA with Tom after special? I just interned at yeah. um, special. They were awesome. Yeah, we did about a year and a half at TBWA. My favourite piece of work that you did in your oh early God, years. Where are you taking this? I don't even was uh, was Jaws. We made people watch for Smirnoff Vodka. You made people watch Jaws in the ocean in the dark. Yeah, looking back now, I don't know how well that is going to go down to Australian listeners. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah. Then, <laughs> then you went to New York, RGA. Yeah. Droga, mm-hmm. love to revisit some work there because you did some pretty iconic work and I'd love to go into maybe some of the activism you did there as well. Then you returned to Aotearoa, bought a nice little house in Tatarangi and spent a couple of years at Colenso BBDO and recently uh, have crossed the ditch to work at Accenture and, and the Monkeys. And I think what's uh, probably the main reason I brought you on was to talk about that because I think there's been a lot of big creatives kind of cross the line from traditional advertising agencies into this creative consultancy in space and you're right in the middle of it. So I would love to talk more about what that means and what that looks like and where creativity has a role in, in those businesses and what's expected of you. But I'd love first just to paint more of a picture on you know, what work that's really inspired or, or how your upbringing and, and your experience coming from the arts, which by the way, best didn't just go to art school, she went to Elam, which is probably the hardest art school and most prestigious, I'd say, in New Zealand. So the likes of Colin McCann, Robin White. So New Zealand's probably most notorious artists go through that school. So the work. Man, I've got a lot of things going through my head. And Sorry. I, <laughs> no, I can be a bit more specific. No, I, uh, I just mentioned that because like the first sentence that I'm going to say might sound like, what has that got to do with everything you just said? <laughs> and I feel like if you're a creative on this, listening to this podcast, you may relate. But sometimes <laughs> I feel like creative pursuits, there's some level of like sickness involved. Maybe that's not a great word to use, but sometimes it feels that way. Like I think if you're a creative who's lasted for this long in the industry and you've managed to kind of move through it and up, etc., sometimes you're, or often, your relationship to, going back to what I was saying about my mother, your relationship to hard things mm. and on the flip side being bored is yeah. both the thing that drives you, but it's also like, it's a tricky relationship, you know. I feel like as I moved from New Zealand to New York, I've got a definite thing that now I'm older I know about my personality where as soon as I've, I need to learn, you know. I need, need to learn. Mm. And as soon as I've hit a line where I'm not learning anymore. I can't just relax and chill my way through it. Yeah. And I wish I could, and that's why I use the word sickness, because sometimes when I'm trying to find a work-life balance, I hate myself a little bit for that, that I can't just relax for a sec and give that time to, like, my being. Yeah. So every time I've hit that moment, of that's when I've gone to New York or, you know, shifted or come back to New Zealand or moved to Australia. It's like that, that constant stretch for something new. And then as soon as you're in it, you're like, oh, my God, this is, 
this is uh, this is overwhelming in a whole lot of ways. But I think that the decision to move to New York and then the decision to move back to New Zealand and stuff, it usually comes from wanting to find and look for, for me, new ways to be in a team. You know, mm-hmm. I think we always talk as creatives about, or you hire this hot team over here or this really good creative and stuff. And people often say that line, you know, it's it's a team effort, you know. Mm. But people, I don't know how often people really dissect that because it is. I think you hire someone new or you go somewhere new to like infect that environment, mm. you know, so that everyone lifts everyone else together, I suppose. That's happened. That's That's been the basis for my choice everywhere that I've gone. Go around spreading your creative germs all over the place. <laughs> From New Zealand to New York. You're a global pandemic yeah. in yourself. Yeah. Too but, soon, um, too soon, Paul. But yeah. We're still living through it. But every time I've made the decision to move somewhere, I really try to um, talk to someone at every level of the business, you know, because you're trying to figure out the culture and the fit and, and what you can, mostly what you can add to it. And in your experience, what culture do you think where you've been has worked the best to really see great creative work come out? And how are the creatives feeling within that culture. Everywhere I've been. Wherever been. you've infected. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Everywhere I've stepped into, I've yeah. tried to step into a, like a, a culture of success that I can learn mm. from to take with me somewhere else. You know, I think as a New Zealander, because I'm a New Zealander, mm. I will probably always feel most at home being creative in New Zealand, let's mm. say. And that might be because of... There's a real... Can I don't even know how to describe it, but when I chose to move home from New York, I was looking for that again, mm. a real level of connection between yeah. people. And a lot of that comes from Māori culture in yeah. New Zealand. I was going to ask you about going back to New Zealand because mm. I think the way you articulated what motivates you to move from one thing to another is a really interesting perspective on it. And there are two things. And I wondered about whether is it a consistent amount of time that you suddenly go, I need something new? Uh, yeah, there is a weird little timeline to what that. what is it? How long is it? Um, I'd say it's like three or four years. Yeah, right. Yeah, because as you chart your creative career yeah. and your learning and your creative career, yeah. you're also charting your personal journey yeah. and learning personally, right? And I reached this moment in New York where I hadn't like dealt with quite a lot of things in my life. Like I hadn't dealt with a, a whole lot of my neurodivergence. I hadn't – I just sort of – taken more and more stress and more and more stress and more and more stress and then I hit leadership I hadn't worked through so much stuff and I was sort of like early 30s some of moving back to New Zealand was I almost don't want to use the word retreat because that sounds like conceding that was absolutely my next question when you went back did you feel like you were taking a step back it wasn't a step back because going like Colenso is a creative powerhouse and I'd come from there and I knew I was going back into that but I felt I needed to build myself as a leader from that place right okay yeah you needed the comfort of that foundation to take that next step up you think I think so I needed to um I needed to go like back to the breeding ground you know I think to learn about how to do this from a place of like balance yeah Maybe that's a maybe that's washy and not clear enough. But were you aware of that when you did? Or, or no, you, no, right. So you're just articulating it now in hindsight. Yeah, yeah, because that's really it. Yeah. Sounds so wise 
and calculated. No, definitely not. And I was talking to Hamina Murray, who uh, was a producer at Finch and is still a producer on Chef's Table. And she was talking about how they conduct their interviews with chefs on that show, if you've ever seen it. When you watch a story about a chef on that Netflix series, you're like, wow, what a great life story. Wow, they've put that all together and then they've told Netflix or whatever. And then discussing that with Hamina, she's like, no, what happens is we do 12, 14 hours of interviews, just like what I just said. They don't really have any clue about why they're doing what they're doing. And the great gift of, I guess, that series is that they're kind of giving that to to chefs. And then they're like, oh, that's my story, you know? (laughs) And sometimes I feel the reason why, like, I'll do, why I said yes way back to doing that chat at Semi-Permanent or, like, why it's great to do podcasts or talk about your career is because it helps you do that. Yeah. Helps you formulate the whys and the... It's kind of how you get wiser, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things, I was on holiday once and I thought, how can I contribute to the world? And Hillary was about to run. So I started Googling jobs in Hillary's team and it was like digital marketing, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, ah. And then Droga was announced as her agency. There's quite a famous piece that you did as part of that campaign, which really influenced me when I saw it. Are you able to talk a little bit about that piece or as much as you can? Yeah, that was a, a bit of work done by my creative partner at the time, Ariel Davis-Lyons and I. And Droga 5 in New York is a super special place led by the most talented people in the in the industry. And so it, it was really inspiring working there and seeing how... That was maybe actually the first time that I'd really watched a... Uh, an agency find a place for creativity in like proper culture, not just in advertising, right? So when I arrived there, they'd already done like the great schlep for Obama and the, the, the people that were coming into that building and the problems that they were trying to solve with creativity as well as comms and advertising was um, really inspiring. And so because they already, they, they had, to your point, they had a relationship going forward with the with the secretary who was, had just decided to run at that time. And there's, as always, the opportunity to do proactive out of that. And so Oreo and I pitched a bunch of stuff. In the end, ran a, ran a film for, for her that, I don't know, look, whenever you look at work from the past and you're a bit like, well, that makes, yeah, that makes... That makes sense. What was so special about that? But to your point earlier, you're still trying to like see what is going on at that time. And you know, in the 2016 election, like that guy Trump was that was a new form of politician where no one really knew how to deal with him or how to put into context the immense amount of hate speech on a daily basis yeah. that he was saying. So it became very difficult, I think, for the media to untangle exactly the impact of those words. And so with that film, which was children in living rooms listening across America, that's what we're trying to to do really, in a very acute way, paint a picture of how dangerous all of this language is for adults and the next generation. Like what ideas are you putting into the minds of that nation? And cut to five years later, you can you can see it, right? Yeah. You can see what embers have been stoked and how those embers have developed into just full full fires and I like oh, I feel I feel for a lot of my friends in the nation of America at the moment. You were there during a lot of the women's rights mm-hmm. movements as well. Can you tell me a little bit about your sign project that was inspired from that? That's kind of something that's still going on a little bit, and I haven't realised the end result yet. But the the plan there was after the Women's March, everyone left their signs at the White House 
And it was just like thousands and thousands of like the best written signs ever. And um, I, I took a couple. <laughs> uh, my, um, my friend growing up, Jessica Keo, her dad was an artist slash protester in New Zealand during the Springbok riots, which was when apartheid was going on. The Springbok team was coming to New Zealand and New Zealand, quite rightly, really were not happy with that. And it fractured the nation for a good couple of months, really. But anyway, he had a... He'd, t- he had a, he'd kept a sign from that protest in the 80s and it, it hung on their staircase for all those years later. And every time I walked past it, I was like, man, that's so cool. Mm. That's such a great piece of history. Mm. So anyway, when I was at the Women's March and I saw all those signs, I was like, oh, i got to keep some of these. So I do have some, but I was also trying to start a project where at some of the key marches around the world, trying to develop a really easy way for people to send their signs to me. Because I would love to have an exhibition yeah. in the future of yeah. of them all, you know. Yeah, maybe that's still like some residual artist in me um, yeah. coming out. But yeah, I just, I mean, you guys must relate to this. I just love the feeling of having an idea, mm. you know. It's like the best, it's right up there with like the best moments in my life. It's like chemically, it's a great feeling. In terms of having an idea, I think when you have the good ones, the ones that, I don't know about you, Beth, but if I know the idea is good i don't know if it becomes an obsession but it keeps me up at night until i start the process of creating it or it's always something i've admired in you is that hustle it's and i'd love to talk more about your views on you know historically as creatives we're kind of given this role of you know you sit in the the corner you have an idea and then it's kind of palmed off and we get very compartmentalized in terms of our skill set whereas i think the role of creatives is changing it's becoming more holistic and and it doesn't just stop there now particularly as campaigns and work become so integrated the process becomes much longer and what are your thoughts on the new role of a creative should be or, or looks like and you know once you have that idea what advice do you have to any creatives listening on how do you really kind of hustle that into being and what skills does that take I would never be in this industry unless this industry had like I mean, I guess the industry's always changed, but I definitely remember feeling like it changed just as I was stepping into the industry. And I suppose in the past, being a really good creative was insight-based and it was um, craft-based, sure. But you really knew the channels that you were putting that out into. And so those skills are still important. But I think the great creatives of our generation, that's not a very helpful term. I think they're entrepreneurs. Mm. You know, and that requires, I like that term because it requires both having an idea and all the good ideas are impossible. Mm. All the good ideas have never been done before. I was hanging out with Jim Curtis from CCO Clems the other day having a coffee and um, we were discussing, well, he was talking about, you know, we only have one rule in our industry, which is that you can't do the same thing twice. Yeah. And I think we're just, that's just being taken to extremes now in in terms of the impossible problems that creatives are turning their minds to and those problems take an entrepreneurial mindset to solve usually there's not a delivery system there to just throw it into the stream of you know yeah so yeah i do like to say to younger creatives these days who are built more that way to be honest Mm. yeah but um slash generation but like a an idea on a piece of paper isn't the end of your job Mm. it's the it's like Point one of a thousand steps to get that work out, yeah. And uh, uh, you're not solely responsible for it, you know. Yeah. You should be building a team to to help you, but 
once it's there, it's it's got to run this gauntlet of how the hell do you make it happen. And now nowadays that involves it still involves like creativity and scripts because you you have to find an interesting way to convey it. Sure, but it also involves technology, R and D. Yeah, you know bending of delivery systems, influences, like, man, it is hard. The idea is that now when black pencils and golds at Khan and stuff, they're, some of the, they're amazing. It's ama- no wonder the, the time frame for those ideas has sort of shifted from a 12-month calendar to, like, two, three years, some of those ideas to get up. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Timing's an interesting one because, you know, the simplicity of, I think, to the start of my career and yours, I remember three months was kind of the production timeline for most things. Mm. Um, and now you're right. Like I look at, even for myself, like we've got three projects that have been in the works for, like you said, two to three years mm. because of the complexity and all the all the parts that it takes. The average tenure of a creative used to be two years, they say. Um, so obviously I imagine that now needs to increase for, for creatives to kind of see their work through. Yeah. I feel like something successful that Tom Darlow and I used to always do together was maybe bi-weekly, we would be like, okay, what are we really excited about? Let's list that. Let's look at camps of, okay, these are long-term things. Mm. Oh, man, we don't have enough short-term stuff going on. Like, whoop, we better put some focus into that. So it's like, it's all about irons and the fires. Shout out to Tom Dallow. He's probably playing tennis in Mungamai right now. That guy. I haven't heard his name in a while. I adore Tom. He was your creative partner for, you kind of worked together, we, yeah, we worked came apart, and, came back yeah. together again. Yeah. And Tom has a musical background as well. I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about the song that you and Tom worked on for a beer brand. Well, Tom is a very talented musician. Mm. And so, um, yeah, that one was a, you know, how do you um, introduce a brand new low-carb beer to the market? And we decided with Max McEwen and Levi Slavin that the best way to do that was to make it a a drink that you would drink for your loved one, Mm. you know? Like feel good, look good for yourself and for your significant other. So that was a beer ballad called I Don't Need Two Hands to Hold You. I don't need two hands to cook your dinner. I don't need two hands to hold your hand. I don't need two hands to water your second lens. I don't need two hands to entertain your friends it was about all the things you can do for the person that you love while holding a low carb beer and so then we 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 just looked at that as if it was a a single that we were we were launching all the little decisions you make on work like that are Mm. so important even right down to it might sound dumb to say on air but right down to there being what do you call it an end card Mm. on that bit of work which seems like a small thing to just let go but it's like no single would ever have that on the end of it. So, you know, I don't know, everything was a debate and we shot that with Damien Chatford and that one was a total hustle. That was like a two-year project, but, man, that was one we just we just forced that one out into the world. I don't know if everyone realises it when they watch it, but that was like one of the first times that beer had been marketed to women and men yeah. in New Zealand, you know. Originally that wasn't a love ballad it was going to be a guy singing. And we really wanted women to be represented in there. And then those choices that we made were completely different choices for the beer Mm. category because we were talking to women as well. Was that something we debated and discussed? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, With client, I mean? No, it wasn't. Um, We just did it. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> but there was a moment when we were shooting, you know, the entry of our female talent, who was like an amazing singer, by the way. Yeah, as she entered shot. Yeah, I definitely, as a woman watching that, I was definitely like, yes. And I think even <laughs> next to me, Tom was like, yes. And someone was like, why are you doing that? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forget when we were Junior Burgers mm. at TBWA. And do you remember the compliments party? I loved that, yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was a great time. It was like a... You smell like rainbows? Oh, Favourite yeah, compliment. We just lost an account, a big one. It was a bad time. It was a bad week to begin as interns, really. And Tara and Ian were juniors, I think, at the time. Anyway, the four of us together were kind of like, maybe our first brief should be like lifting the, the feels. You know? Yeah. So we made a... We came up with this idea for like a compliments party. We got everyone to write anonymous compliments about someone else in the agency. And then we had a giant party where we, like, posted them up large. But they were beautiful because, yeah. of course, you know, agencies are full of amazing writers. <laughs> they were things that were so heartwarming. Like, the ones I remember, two of them, really. One was, I stay late just because you do. And I was yeah. like, that's so lovely. And then the other one was uh, Hot Lips, which is the nickname of someone. Hot Lips. You, you could have had me that one time if you just tried harder or something. <laughs> So there was a good mix of comical and absurd, but it, that place really taught me how important it is to like contribute to the work, but also contribute to, to the, the camaraderie. Yeah. Can can I? Because uh, the compliments party just sounds like the best thing. Should we have another one? Could I be invited? <laughs> Walking into a basement full of compliments. Yeah. And one was um, you smell of rainbows. Yeah. Yeah. So I love it. it was yeah. It was really it, yeah. It was it was really needed. Those anyway. were good old days. Yeah. It's sometimes hard to have that. I mean, you know, every year we work with an agency is often less budgets and yeah. um, timing's tighter, et cetera. Mm. But, like, keeping that stuff alive is so, so important. Mm. Yeah. So, Beth, hmm. you've just collected another line in your zoo. I'd love to go into the binary code piece that you've just been awarded for and hear a bit more about that project because I think we've you know you really do play in the both fields funny and purposeful and mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of the more purposeful pieces mm. um, that means a lot to you and I'd love to hear about the process and what it took to get that piece of work out and the collaboration you went through with community to ensure that it was done the right way I think co-creation when you're creating something for a community if you are from that community it's a lot simpler, but if, if you're not just the, the need for that collaboration, I think that's a great example. Are you able to go a little bit into that project? Yeah, that project is interesting for a few reasons. One, for the project itself, but also what it taught me about the kind of work that I want to make and some of the reason why I'm now in Australia. Mm. I could probably attribute to that project. It came from a like a like it came from Hayley Craig and uh, Billy Worthington originally, mm. and it was a look at understanding data bias and how data can be as corrupt as and as biased as any other system. And I guess as we move into the, the world of data year on year, we're starting to see that in all sorts yeah. of different ways. But Beyond Binary Code was a, a resource that we created alongside Outline in New Zealand and alongside uh, Rainbow Communities together to try and change the way that companies ask for data and forms. If you've never had to think too much about gender, that sounds like a, the privilege of that. That sounds like a quite a small thing. But what we were trying to do is figure out a, a simple way for businesses who want to to be more gender inclusive when they ask for data. 
to start to understand how to ask about sensitive data like gender, whether you even need to, because most of the time you don't. Um, so it's a very complex bit of work, which one half of it is about when you don't ask for data the right way, what are the effects on tra- like trans and non-binary communities and stuff? What are the, the ongoing effects of that? And then the other side is understanding what we use that data for because it's everything, you know? You wouldn't think that a form that says, hey, Tara, can you please list your name? You know, these other things, and then I'm going to ask you for your gender here. I'm going to give you not many options, binary, male, female, for you to tick. When you don't let people identify as themselves in digital spaces, then what happens to every other decision that that business is making? There's immense knock-on for everything from, like, how you recruit, the products that you decide to make in the future, how you're selling things, how you're addressing your customers. Yeah, and so we ended up, it was a two-year project because a lot of people and workshops had to be involved both on the New Zealand business side and from rainbow communities. Because it's so, there's so much distrust and it's so sensitive, it was, we had to be patient with getting that work out. But anyway, cut to cut to cut to what it actually is is and you can go and have a look at it now, um our beyond binary code uh, .co.nz and there you'll find like a whole lot of downloadable code formats that you that any business can um, plug in that will change their forms and how data's asked for in New Zealand plus customizable versions depending on what category of business you're in. Plus a whole bunch of other resources like uh, if you want to get your business to adopt that, you know, like full presentation kits for you to do that, that you can give to HR, et cetera, about why it's important. So, yeah, it was a long two-year process and a lot of it involved educating people. That was for Spark, which is New Zealand's biggest telco that works a lot with businesses in the digital space, you know. My um, wife and I are enjoying educating all of the schools that we're putting our boys on the waiting list for on you know the not accounting for mum mum situation. So you know having to cross out dad and put other mum. It's a small thing that would mean a lot. And when we do come across a form which is inclusive of same sex parents, it's you know you are so fond and so positive towards that institution. And it's the same with brands. Again, it's a small thing that can mean so much. And, you know, us gays, we outspend our straight counterparts by more than double. So uh, I think in the context of brands, it's something that commercially makes sense as well. But the other thing that that bit of work taught me, because there was so many... Oh, the collaboration process of that, like it involved me being in mm. in the Spark building with my client Frith Wilson Hughes, who was like phenomenal advocate on client side. Yeah, I I had to be in their in their like dev department, you know, like the the huge amount of people that you had to kind of usher that project through, and the impossibility of constantly people telling you, mm, that's not going to work or. Re- I think all creatives can relate to that idea of keeping the how do you keep the core of the idea as you move it through things but tinker with stuff as you go because you because you have to. It's interesting because you talk about your generation of creatives and that entrepreneurship that yeah. goes with that. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the example, isn't it, that you've just explained. You've you just having to sit there and shepherd something through yeah. collaborations yeah. with a whole go bunch of around a wall, under a wall and being in a place like Colenso that had that, I guess, relationship to impossible things um, in an advertising sense, I guess what I noticed, and everything I say from this point on is just my own opinion, I feel like I definitely noticed this conversation starting to happen in the industry. And it began when I was in New York, when I watched creatives jumping ship to Spotify and Google, and Tara is one of them. This big discussion happening around, like, 
what is creativity here to do and where is it okay for that to be at play, you know? And as soon as, like, to go back to the Spotify, Google thing, what problems we're attacking has changed. And I really have enjoyed in the last four years expanding, applying my creativity, not just to some of those more traditional things like campaigns and scripts, etc., but to, like, having long-term effects, like... It might be a systematic change that's needed. It might be a back-end change. It might be a whole social change. It might be trying to come up with solves for sustainability issues for the planet. Stuff that sits further than comms work, Yeah, you know? And I know agencies definitely do that, but I just got really interested in doing that in a in a way that wasn't just a prototype for something. It was actually, man, can I... Can I apply creativity to business problems that really have a lasting effect? That seems like such a fertile ground for creative thinking. Mm. I guess it's just how do you get yourself in a position to do that rather than just be boxed into comms, you know? Yeah, and so I spent a couple of years doing stuff like working with Tara on the side or like, um, I don't know, I'd spend a bit of time with like the Google Labs team or and I was still doing creative stuff and I might be doing some political things, etc. And I ended up in a space where... In my own head, I was like, I really can tell that I want to try that new frontier, but I still needed to do that in a way where I really liked the people that I was working with. I think as you develop talent in a field, one of the questions that you really have to ask yourself is, who do I want to give that talent to? You know, that's a really key question to ask yourself. And I'd already had a a relationship with Tara Ford, Mm. um, who's at the Monkees. And so the more people that I met there, I guess that was like, yeah, this is a group of people that I really like and I want to add something to. And their new connection to Accenture, I wanted to experiment with what that might allow me to do. And so many creators are doing this in all different ways, right? Whether they're jumping ship to go and work at Deloitte or Accenture and then people who just love Adland are like, that's why are you going to work for accountants? Like it's a it's a very like fertile discussion at the moment. But yeah, I wanted to do that experiment. So man, I'm already finding it a fascinating new What's your remit? Territory. Oh man, that is a hard one to answer, but I feel like it's is a metaphor. It's kind of like looking out at this ocean of Accenture and going like, oh man, where do we want to sail? Where do we want to put the creativity the <laughs> boat and how can we activate creativity in different parks of Accenture to get to some really interesting new places? So people aren't coming to you with a brief. Man, it totally depends, but Accenture's a fascinating organisation. You've now got people like David Droger and Neil Heyman up heading up song. There are all these interesting studios starting. There's a sustainability studio, a metaverse studio, and some of those may be brief. Some of them may be how they want to pitch ideas to clients. It's like a whole bunch of people are trying to figure out how to work together in new and interesting ways. And I kind of am enjoying that soup. Like, don't get me wrong, it's like, it's not easy bringing different ways to think creatively, drastically different ways to think creatively all together. But I'm already finding it so interesting and I feel like even in four months, I feel like I've moved a lot in knowledge, you know? There are so many fascinating anthropologists and researchers and being able to have a different, being able to sit down and brainstorm on big, big sustainability thinking for a whole day and but also have that access point to creative systems that we that we know and love and find new ways for them to happen together 
is like, it's going to take a little bit of time. I think what you're an example of, Beth, is, you know, for creatives listening, you know, historically your options of career has been mostly in the traditional agency sense. Now the options of, of where you can go and what you can do are expanding. Hugely. And, you know, to inject creativity in, in some of these new places and to be the first creatives to almost arrive and to do that is, is incredibly exciting. And I think there's it will continuously change, so it's not like the people that come next or after you totally will be able to learn from everything that you've gone through and you can pass down because it's just it's so fluid there's something we talk a lot about right like Mm. uh, I think like growing up in advertising growing up in advertising I didn't have clear mentor relationships in some ways because I didn't see me there Mm. you know I still don't see me there yeah in terms of a, a queer neurodivergent person I didn't have anyone who Growing up, being in advertising when I was younger, I didn't have anyone who had any, in some ways, shared lived experience with me in that sense. So I find a lot of my mentors, like, adjacent, you know. Yeah. Tara and I kind of have that mm. relationship. I kind of see Tara as a, as a mentor, you know. I think that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> Is it vice versa also? Yeah, 100%. Oh, you had to dig for that. No, well, but what I'm saying is that's kind of, I say that to creators all the time, like it's it's totally important to establish relationships up the chain. But I've found personally the more important ones are the ones at your level or just one step above. And even in terms of entrepreneurship and, I don't know, different businesses here or there that I might be trying to get going, whatever it is, but the mentor relationship you want is the one that's 12 months ahead of you. Not the one that, personally, not the one that's 10 years ahead of you because that's more important. Culture moves so quickly. It's interesting you say that, talking about relationships, and I think you can be the best creative in the world, but if you don't have the ability to make meaningful relationships with other creatives or the people around you, you'll never reach the potential you could. And I think one thing you said talking about Beyond Binary Code was the relationship with your client. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that historically creatives have always been distanced from clients. Like we can't be trusted around them. Our shoelaces might not be tied up or, you know. Um, and I think Mother in London is an interesting example of where they took that away and great things happened. And I certainly know from all of the big projects in my career, mm. I've had a really terrific personal relationship and at times, most of the time, friendships with, with the clients. And it's mm. that trust mm. When you're doing new things that haven't been done before, and if you want to swim outside of the lane of traditional mediums and move into, you know, using creativity within your client's product suite and so forth, you need that trust with each other for them to feel and believe in you to do that. And I think that's what Beth is really good at as well. Well, it's been my experience that clients, they need to believe you as opposed to hear the sell. Yeah. They just need to believe that you believe it which I guess is why that old that old saying about like don't present anything, even to your CD, that you don't believe in yeah. because it may end up that you have to fake belief in that for the next nine months. So, <laughs> Well, now the timeline is two, two to three years. years. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, impossible so. to fake belief yeah, that yeah, long. Yeah. Beth, hmm? it's an absolute pleasure talking to you as always. Thanks so much for the conversation today. I think we've... Yeah, gone all over the place and it's been terrific. And I think the one observation I always have when I speak to you is just the sheer joy you still get out of being a creative. It's because I love people, yeah. And it's fun. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It's ha- oh, God, it's, it's hard, so hard. But no, it's, it's a good great. time. And you remind me of that every time I talk to you and it just gives me a burst of energy of oh why God. I love this. So this has turned into a compliments party, shall yeah. we? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but 
I hope you've done you that. You smell like rainbows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've always yeah. smelled like rainbows, and I knew that compliment was for me. Sylvia oh, Comstock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. I'd never, yeah. I'd never made that connection. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that infectious spirit of your passion is it has rubbed off to people listening today. And I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. But you know, the the thing is, Beth, you have to now give us a hint of who you're going to bring to the table. You got any thoughts? No, because I like to break the category. Good I'm like, oh, how can I break this? I need to go and do some research on like everyone that's been on it and be like, I'm going to break the shit out of this category. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well done. Hey, Tara, I'd just like to well, really just say what you've just said to, to Beth. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It's been wonderful to meet you personally. Um and just great to listen to you. So thank you for your time and sharing your thoughts on, on so much. It's been really wonderful. Thanks so, for having me. Thank you a lot. And we'll see you next time, Beth. Look out. Sure will. Thanks for downloading the Creative Relay podcast brought to you by Smith & Weston. Go to our website at thecreativerelay.com where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests. Mm-hmm.